Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War podcast. I apologize for missing last week's episode. I became suddenly ill, and unfortunately, I'm still getting over it a little bit. But I'm going to get through this one, and then we'll get back on the regular schedule next week. And that regular schedule is going to try and be weekly from here on out. So without further ado, here is episode 15, Downfall of the Parties, the election of 1852, and the end of the American political order. The election of 1852 would end up being one of the most crucial races in American history, but not actually for the election itself. Rather, during the political conflict, the two-party system would finally crumble. This would lead to the complete collapse of the Whig Party, setting the stage for future political battles. But the Democrats, too, would be strained to the breaking point, and in fact suffered an irreparable breach themselves. Like a soldier so caught up in the rush of battle, the Democrats did not realize the extent of the wound until it finally overwhelmed them, amidst the shattering of the American state itself. Heading into the election of 1852, it would have appeared as though the basic political structure of the United States was strong. The Democrats were in an advantageous but not unassailable position, which should have encouraged both major parties towards internal cohesion together. The Whigs needed to unify in order to challenge the Democrats, while the Democrats should have been united in the hopes of gaining the presidency when the political winds flowed their way. However, the twin issues of slavery and territorial expansion had created a rift in both parties, at a time when populations and ideology encountered rapid flux. The issue of population was largely about an incredible boom in the immigrant population from new sources, a situation which created tension in the culture of the United States. We'll definitely be covering the more direct response in a future episode, but for now, we need to jump across the Atlantic and back in time to understand the situation. In 1845, most of Europe appeared, on a surface level, to be both secure and stable. Unfortunately, that turned out to be a misleading quiet. Over the next few years, a series of blights and bad weather afflicted harvests intermittently across the continent. Now, the most well-known of these to Americans would become known as the Irish Potato Famine, and it is key to our story, but hardly the only aspect. The looming crisis of the Hungry Forties, which affected most corners of Europe in some way or at some time, was particularly awful in Ireland due to the political and economic situation. The Irish, at the time, with a strong Catholic majority, faced off against an oppressive regime at the hands of its British masters, specifically Anglican Ireland and Calvinist Scotland. Despite being ostensibly an integral and equal part of Great Britain, the position of Ireland was more akin to a conquered dependency or a colonial possession. The Irish formed a broad underclass on their own island, as English and Scottish landlords had displaced many Irish landowners over the course of several centuries of intermittent war. Though there were differences, to be sure, in many ways the British treated and looked upon the Irish much in the same way that most white Americans treated their African-American brethren. Irishmen did have infinitely more freedom compared to slaves, but in practice, they found it exceedingly difficult to escape a life of menial agricultural labor. It may not have been slavery in truth, 
but the Irish served in essentially the same social role as the inferiors who could be used up and discarded, even though they had achieved nominal equality under the law. Informal social structures kept them from participating fully in economic and political life. Now, compared to the landlords, most Irish ate a much more monotonous diet, had a distinct and separate culture, and were viewed as inherently unfit or even subhuman. Most of the quality agricultural products were exported, leaving the Irish to eke out a living on very small plots of soil. Now this is where the humble potato comes in. All the good acreage was being used for export crops like wheat to England or to the continent. Therefore, the Irish planted what they could, where they could. Potatoes, originally imported from Peru by the Spanish, turned out to thrive in the Irish climate, and they spread across the rest of Europe as well. They're reasonably hardy, produce a great many calories in a small space, and can be stuck just about anywhere. Because of this, they expanded cultivable land rather than displacing existing crops, and happily, the humble potato is exceptionally nutritious as well. This plenty is exactly why the looming blights fell very cruelly hard on a people already struggling to get by, and whose one advantage lay in the reliable potato crop. The blight spread from the source of one particular breed of potato fungus, well known in the Americas and considered more of a nuisance than a mortal threat. In American soils, it had competitors and would not completely pollute the crop. However, once accidentally introduced into Ireland, it spread rapidly and thoroughly across the land. This devastated potato harvests over the course of several years. As tough times began to take hold in England and Scotland as well, things in Ireland went from bad to worse. Irish families had been facing hunger already, but now the remaining food that was available ended up shipped elsewhere in, Br in the British Isles, or even to the continent, to those who could pay more. Around a million Irish died during these years, out of an Irish population of only 8 million. Facing imminent catastrophe, those Irish who could afford to do so began a sustained migration abroad, and significantly, the vast majority of this emigration was directed west, across the sea, to the United States. One and a half million Irish flooded to the eastern seaboard and settled in America, forming the first great Irish communities in Boston, Philadelphia, and especially New York. Although predominantly farm laborers by trade, most of them ignored agricultural opportunities. They lacked the capital to buy land, and perhaps had no great desire to continue working the soil. Given recent history, few would blame them. Given the time in which they arrived, the natural question for the Irish was exactly what they thought of slavery. Unfortunately, for historical convenience, it appears they mostly didn't think about slavery. In theory, one might assume they would be a good fit for anti-slavery opinion, given their personal experiences and ongoing hostility with Anglican landlords, which is rather similar to the situation in the American South. However, two major factors intervened. The first was that the Irish people, mostly, not exclusively, but mostly, settled in the North, and had no more contact with slavery than most Northerners. The second was that the Irish were very rarely welcome within anti-slavery circles. Most of the anti-slavery societies were closely associated with evangelical churches, 
and these had a very hostile attitude towards Roman Catholicism. Many of the great anti-slavery crusaders were also aggressively, even offensively, anti-Catholic. This was a period in which, yes, some old prejudices had faded, but popery was still a muttered curse among many Northeasterners. And especially in New England, many still held a particular loathing for a Catholicism that, well, if we're going to be honest, this was mostly a figment of their imaginations. The Irish therefore endured prejudice and frequent and blatant public sneers from the very same opinion leaders who were the most enlightened on slavery. Today, we would probably see a great contradiction of these attitudes, but many Americans at the time considered both slavery and Roman Catholicism under the general heading of tyranny, often with quite a bit of bad history or myth-making to support it. And many of the same stuffy English prejudices against the Irish also held sway in the United States, especially among the educated and upwardly mobile who formed the backbone of political life. The net result of this was that the Irish tended to be extremely aloof from other groups in terms of political affiliation, and, for this and other reasons, voted heavily for Northern Democrats. Some urban Democratic politicians in the North welcomed these votes, and they were very willing to hand out patronage and support in return. Whigs generally were not. Now, we have already discussed how the Democrats were more cosmopolitan in this era, and this is a concrete example of how that had mattered in practice. With no compelling reason to vote Whig, and few reasons to even consider it, the Irish became one of the most reliable Democrat voting blocs, and would remain so for over a century. Their interests and political support, however, trended very differently than Southern Democrats, or even Democrats in much of the Midwest. Now, the other great wave of immigration mostly came from Germany, or more accurately, the various German states, seeing as there was as yet no singular unified Germany. This group requires a bit more explanation. By 1848, large swaths of Europe had been faced with several years of intermittent hunger, constantly high food prices in a time when food was a huge portion of a family budget, and ongoing irritation as monarchs seemed unable to fix social problems but over-eager to clamp down on any perceived threat or unrest. The result was an explosion of anger that turned almost overnight into new revolutions as the French, Italians, German, Hungarians, and others began uprisings with varying goals. Within months, a sudden political change swept across Europe, and multiple revolutionary armies began marching across their respective nations. Now, the goals were broadly to establish entirely new nation-state republics, but the specifics and the fanaticism, or dedication, naturally varied from people to people and region to region and movement to movement. Now, I highly recommend that you learn about these revolutions because they are critical to understanding the creation of modern movement, and I would recommend the Revolutions podcast. It has an excellent series on all of these different movements. However, for our purpose, the most important point is that nearly every last one failed. This emphatically did not go unnoticed in the United States. Many Americans began looking suspiciously at the often brutal reactions of the wicked-seeming European monarchies, while the revolutionary leaders were widely admired in the press, and their exploits both publicized and openly lauded. Now, I am not saying, by the way, that this is entirely the reality. The situation is complicated. But that is how it was perceived in the United States. 
Many of those European revolutionaries, however, well, they noticed this, and in the aftermath of their failure, they left Europe for the much more friendly embrace of America. Their efforts at home had faltered. This helped inaugurate a wave of German immigration the nation had never seen before, along with considerable numbers of Hungarians and others. I am absolutely simplifying here by referring to these as German immigrants, because in truth a considerable number of other ethnic and cultural groups were involved. But most shared a common origin in fleeing the monarchs of Europe, and more broadly in supporting republic over tyranny. Now these peoples often moved into the West, where land was inexpensive and opportunities wide open. For just a couple examples, St. Louis, Missouri became a hub of German immigrants. There's also a rather large but partly unrelated wave of immigration from the Nordic countries. Wisconsin was now busy acquiring much of its unique Scandinavian character in these years. Now, these were hardly the only immigrants to the West, of course, but they were the most distinctive and noticeable in the American context. These immigrants had a number of differences compared to the Irish, despite arriving around the same time. Most refugees from the failed revolutions of 1848 were middle class, frequently craftsmen or possessing at least some education. They were often connected to the world of political ideas and ideologically in favor of centralized republics. On average, they arrived with capital to spend, but this might be in a variety of forms and might include financial capital, social connections, skills, or education. This enabled them to join American society more easily and on considerably more integrated terms compared to the Irish experience. Another significant difference compared to the Irish experience was that the German immigrants were a mix of Protestant and Catholic in Orton religion. Those from northern Germany or Scandinavia were mostly Protestant, and conversely Catholics came mostly from the south, following the major religious divide in Europe. This made many of the immigrants more acceptable in American society, and limited racial prejudice. On the balance, this also meant that refugees from the frail revolutions of 1848 might become voters for parties other than the Democrats. Not the jump ahead in the story, but many of them would indeed reliably vote for anti-slavery causes eventually. Additionally, these groups became fiercely attached to the Union precisely because they, or their opinion leaders, had fought and failed to establish republics in Europe. America won their loyalty and love, and they would prove their devotion in time as well. However, now we turn to the election. Going in, the Democrats were already experiencing the turmoil which one day would tear the party apart, but it manifested at first more by confusion than fury. We've already mentioned Lewis Cass, and he returned to vie for the party's nomination. However, neither he nor anyone else could actually manage to get it, another sign of troubling political deadlock. Eventually, yet another dark horse emerged. Franklin Pierce was nominated in order to break this impasse among multiple powerful, regionally-based Democrats. As a compromise figure, he had a number of convenient attributes for the election, and relatively few downsides as an unimportant political figure himself. Pierce was a New England-born Democrat, but also staunchly against abolition causes in all its forms, something like an anti-Zachary Taylor given flesh. Additionally, he had served as a brigadier general in the Mexican-American War, which might become important given that it was widely expected that the Whigs would nominate General Winfield Scott. Pierce, 
having little political following of his own, became an empty vessel that Democrats of all stripes might pour their hopes into. Pierce's lack of political weight might have formed a critical weakness, but since Scott was something of a political neophyte himself, this might actually be a safer bet than it looked at first glance. We should probably pause here to note that Pierce was not exactly the greatest warrior in American history. He only became a general due to President Polk considering him a political ally, as Pierce entirely lacked the military experience to have earned a commission. Then, during the war, Pierce frequently became sick and managed to injure himself so severely that he barely actually commanded anything ever. Now, no one doubted his courage, at least, but it was clear that he was simply no soldier. Nonetheless, with a little judicious rewriting, for honesty was not a part of 19th century party politics, Pierce might be portrayed as a noble public servant, or even a war hero. And Pierce would need all the advantages he could get, because the Whigs, indeed, duly picked Winfield Scott to lead them. Now, Scott, of course, was a national hero with a much more visible name, and just like Taylor was. And it perhaps seemed fitting to ask him to command the Whig party as well, following in Taylor's footsteps. Now, apart from a weak challenge in Fillmore, the Whigs frankly had no good alternatives to Scott in this case. Like Taylor, Scott was a slaveholder and a southerner, yet retained a perspective that was distinctly national in scope rather than sectional. He endorsed the Compromise of 1850, though it was not popular among northern Whigs, in order to shore up support among the South. Now, this failed spectacularly, as leading southern Whigs, such as Toombs and Stevens, refused to support Scott anyway in action which we will examine shortly. During the Whig Party convention, delegates from the North and South met with barely concealed animosity. Southern Whig leaders still stung over Taylor's political turn towards free soil politics and blindly ignoring why Taylor had done so, still insisted on a number of concessions up front. They preferred Fillmore, who looked pro-Southern enough, at least on paper. But Fillmore was no more able to build a national following than Tyler had years before, and his support of the Compromise of 1850, regardless of the logics of the situation, made him untenable to too many Northerners. The Southern Wing ultimately gave way, but insisted that the Compromise of 1850 be approved in the official party platform. But whatever the compromises they made, they were distinctly unenthusiastic, which had consequences of its own. Now, in personal electoral terms, the problem was that Scott had military experience and public respect, but simply was no politician. This trade-off often works in American politics, but in this case it did not. We've seen that Scott possessed an unfair reputation as a buffoon, despite his exceptionally sharp mind. He simply did not constantly think in political terms, in terms of popularity, alliances, favors, and power bases. Scott, though much more capable than most presidential candidates, simply did not have the kind of populist touch necessary in this era. He lacked the political gravitas as well, so necessary to wave away the petty mockery of the opposition press. But in addition, Winfield Scott faced an uphill battle owing to that rapidly changing northern electorate, at a time when, as discussed, immigration was on a huge upswing and similarly changed the voter rolls. Scott found himself utterly unable to appeal to the Irish vote, or Catholics in general, although he clumsily made the attempt in several public rallies. Ironically, this was partly an unfair judgment 
by Catholics on Scott's actions during the Mexican-American War. Now, you may recall that back in the war, a number of Irishmen in the U.S. Army had deserted and gone over to the Mexican side. Many of these men formed the San Patricio Brigade and were among the most courageous and effective defenders. However, during the fighting around Mexico City, most of them were captured and several executed by Scott's order. In his defense, he did no more than military justice required, and in fact made sure to offer clemency in any case where he could find any excuse. But the excuses did not matter, as word of the events simply demolished Scott in much of the North. This was doubly ironic because Scott had carefully built ties to the Catholic Church in Mexico, ensuring they would not rally the population against him. Indeed, his efforts to show respect and ingratiate himself had extended to taking part in Catholic services, a little bit embarrassing for an Anglican. The work of diplomacy caused Scott some trouble with Polk and his officers, as well as the press, which did not think very much of a commanding officer cozying up to a quote-unquote foreign religion. The net result of all this was that on election day, Pierce smothered Scott. Pierce won a comfortable, if not exceptional, margin of the popular vote, but he utterly demolished Scott in the Electoral College, with only a few Whig holdouts left standing at the end. Even most of New England went thoroughly Democrat, a humiliating result that sparked the breakup of the Whig Party. But there was even more behind this, because Scott also showed fatal weakness in the South. As mentioned above, prominent Southern Whigs such as Robert Toombs and Alexander Stevens were very unhappy with the very bargain they made. They mostly refused to vote, well, Whig, even after getting a favorable party platform and a slaveholding candidate. At this point, they technically broke off to form their own very short-lived separate party and nominated Daniel Webster for some reason. Now, Webster was, if anything, more anti-slavery than Scott, and he came from Massachusetts, but that's politics for you. Apparently, the Southern Whigs at this stage were simply desperately opposed to Scott, despite already formally approving him. Regardless, Toombs and Stevens' joint revolt went precisely nowhere, except to break the Whig party clean in two. The problem was that in attempting a kind of coup against the party, they failed, but in such a way that they were unable or unwilling to go back into the fold. To Northern Whigs, the Southerners had just demanded an unpopular party platform, and then failed to turn out and launched a pitiful tantrum out of spite. Meanwhile, the Southern Whigs, seeing their political position crumble, turned much harder towards a pro-slavery politics to save themselves. Now, the decentralized nature of American politics made this breakup less visible. But the net effect was that the Whigs essentially ceased to exist as a political party, and new organizations would have to be built to fill the void. And as the Southern Whigs turned even further south for a political identity, the Northern ones turned their eyes inward just the same. For the Democrats, the election appeared like a triumph. But although this victory began the breakup of their Whig rivals directly, they unwittingly spread the seeds of their own swiftly advancing self-immolation in the future. Without a strong external rival, internal factions began to break down the Democrats and separate them by region. The collapse of the Whig party caused them to reconsider their ideology, 
they began to form new identities while the Whigs started to bog down from the weight of their own baggage. Furthermore, because slavery was rapidly becoming the hot-button issue for politics at every level, the Democrats would somehow have to come up with a national solution and a program, and pleasing every side of the party, they failed. Now, in the end, the Democrats are going to paper over those divisions for most of the next decade. But the price of doing so will be that the party creates the preconditions for civil war. The seeds sown by Democrats in 1852 would find fertile soil in Kansas, soil that soon will run red with blood. However, next week we're actually going to do another bonus episode uh, with an interlude focusing on the literary war, and especially Uncle Tom's Cabin, a classic of American literature, often deeply misunderstood today, but one which is, I think, critical to understanding the evolution of anti-slavery sentiment. Thank you for tuning in to the American Civil War podcast. We'll catch you guys next week.